good morning and welcome to Church at Home. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, If you're with us for the first time, we're absolutely delighted that you've joined us and I do hope by the grace of God that our study this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. Now, there is a great deal of confusion today, I think, about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Some people say that they're Christians by birth. They were born into a Christian family. Others say that being a Christian is purely a matter of intellectual assent to certain ideas. And still others say that a Christian is simply someone who goes to church. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, in our passage this morning, the Lord Jesus spells it out for us, but his message is surprising and even rather unsettling. So if today's study leaves you with questions, uh, or you'd like to talk to somebody, or you'd like someone to pray with you, can I encourage you to visit our website, uh, www.sbbc.org.za, and uh, on the home page you'll find a contact tab where you can leave your contact details, and during the week someone on the team will be in touch with you. But now, uh, as we begin, can I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, And before I read the passage, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Won't you bow with me as I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and heart. So we pray now for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills that put it into practice. And we ask it for the glory of your name. Amen. So the reading is from Mark chapter 8 verse 31 through to chapter 9 and verse 1. Mark 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory 
with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, just so far in God's holy and inerrant word. Now I guess after the lockdown that many people have quite serious financial problems. But uh, spare a thought this morning, will you, for a man in Bristol in the UK who received a tax bill for £14 trillion sterling. Charles Hembra, whose job is to test railway signals, has worked out that on his current salary it'll take him 369 million years to pay the bill. Now Christians are not unfamiliar with the idea of an unpayable debt. It's a very real issue for us because the debt that we owe to God is an actual debt for all our rebellion and sin and it is utterly beyond us to pay it. And that is why the cross of Christ is so very important to us because we know and understand that on the cross the Son of God paid our debt. It wasn't his debt he was paying on the cross, it was our debt. And he's also through the cross providing undeserved release from all our obligations as well as undeserved riches. Now I think our Bible passage this morning is a bit of a surprise because in these verses Jesus teaches that there are in fact two crosses and I do hope everyone understands this. There is the cross that Jesus is going to suffer and die on now that is the cross of salvation and then there is the cross that his followers must carry which is the cross of discipleship. Both crosses are essential but they're very different. Uh, if there's anyone listening this morning who wants to be forgiven and have eternal life then you need to grasp the first, the cross of salvation. You need to work out why Jesus died, that he was there for you and then you need to ask him for the mercy which he freely and gladly gives. If however you want to belong to Christ in the sense of being his disciple you need to grasp the second because you see that cross is telling us that an old life has to go and our new life must begin. In other words you've got to get new life through the cross of salvation which Jesus gives as a free gift and then you've got to live this new life through the cross of discipleship and that's the responsibility of every Christian. Now the lead up to this teaching is that at least one disciple, Simon Peter, has begun to see who Jesus is. He's begun to realise he's the Messiah. But rather like the man with bad, bad eyesight, he can't see what Jesus has come to do. He's got the identity right, but he's got the mission wrong. And uh, we're going to see as we look at these two subjects today, the, the cross of salvation the cross of discipleship, we're going to see that you and I have got to get the whole picture clear. So first, let's think about the cross of salvation. In verse 31, we read that Jesus began to teach that he would suffer and be killed and rise on the third day. Now, Peter couldn't bear to listen to that and he began to rebuke Jesus. 
Jesus then has to rebuke Peter because as one writer puts it for Peter the cross is unthinkable for Jesus the cross is inevitable and they can't both be right now I know that this is very familiar to some of us and uh, those of you who have been coming to church for many years know perfectly well who Jesus is and what he came to do but I do want to remind you that for Peter realising that Jesus is the Messiah was a huge breakthrough but then hearing that he must die was totally incomprehensible I guess it's rather like hearing some wonderful news and almost in the next moment having it all taken away from you it's like somebody saying well we found the cure for COVID-19 but then saying oh dear I'm afraid we've lost it or uh, we've recovered the money that the hackers stole from your bank account oh but oh dear it's gone again now that is the kind of struggle that the Apostle Peter's having here uh, for Peter a suffering Messiah is a contradiction in terms uh, Peter's been with Jesus a long time he's seen Jesus prove that there's no problem he can't solve so in Mark chapters 1 to 8 we've seen haven't we one proof after another of his great kingly power but now Jesus says I know what you've seen and heard but I'm about to die so all disciples both in the first century and in the 21st century need to grasp that the first half of Mark's gospel is all about the kingly power of Jesus and then the second half of Mark's gospel is all about the cross part one is Jesus overcoming all enemies without any difficulty part two is Jesus being overcome by his enemies and you see these things are both true and they're both logical because the question you see is not is Jesus the Messiah no the question is what kind of Messiah is he and the answer is that he's the kind of Messiah that must die and rise and the reason that he must do this is because that's the way he, he will achieve the rescue everyone needs and so we read in chapter 8 and verse 31 that he began to teach what we might call lesson number two they've learned lesson number one who Jesus is and now he's going to teach lesson number two and that is uh, what Jesus says in verse 31 the son of man must suffer many things now some of you know Jesus borrows that phrase son of man from the Old Testament uh, where we discover that the son of man is somebody with cosmic absolute power and authority and Jesus says the son of man that's me by the way must suffer I am the Christ yes you have got that right and I will be crucified because if our debts are to be cancelled then he must die and if death is to be defeated he must die now still today many people think that the death of Jesus was rather a sad tragedy uh, but we're not meant to look at the crucifixion and become all sheepish and embarrassed as if it was a, a terrible mistake because Jesus said it must happen he went to the cross deliberately and voluntarily and purposefully 
and uh, we read in verse 32 that he spoke plainly about it now the word plainly there is used only once in the synoptic gospels and it's here so Jesus explained the cross plainly very openly, very clearly very freely remember he's the best communicator in the whole world and he gathers the disciples and in words of one syllable he says I'm going to be totally open with you about the crucifixion now of course the whole world is going to get behind the death of Jesus religious people are going to get behind it non-religious people are going to get behind it in verse 31 we're told that the organisers of Jesus' death are going to be religious uh, it's the elders it's the chief priests it's the teachers of the law and I think we can read that and easily miss the shock of it because Jesus is saying the very same people who've been studying the Old Testament and waiting for the Messiah well they're the people who are going to crucify the Messiah and that's me I think it would be uh, rather like this if we said today that such and such a man is going to be rejected from his ministry and the people who reject him will be all the clergy uh, all the bishops and the faculty at Bible College that I think is the force of what Jesus is saying about himself and uh, the religious people will motivate it the Roman government will agree to it and all the crowds will cry out for it and the reason is that um, the reason for this is not just that Good Friday is a reminder for us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life but Good Friday is also a reminder for us that given half a chance you and I would also do away with our maker because you see deep down inside that's what we're all like a couple of years ago Time magazine featured an article on internet violence it said that 70% of people using the internet have experienced some form of harassment now, the writer says that of all the people who've attacked him I understand they're called the trolls the most vicious has been a girl called Megan she repeatedly ridiculed him and said she wanted to meet him and fight him and so he arranged to meet her and when he did he discovered that she was tiny apparently just over five feet tall and he said to her would you like to punch me and she replied no of course not but then said yes the internet is the realm of the coward but you see the internet gives expression doesn't it to what we're really like inside it's a vehicle that enables people to say what they want and it reveals this tremendous darkness this, this desperate hostility in the human heart it's expressed horizontally between people but of course it's also being expressed vertically against our maker against the Lord against our King and you see if you want to know what your own heart is really like if there were no restraint then look no further than Good Friday that's why Jesus is going to die it's going to be a human assault but behind it is the divine plan of God Jesus must 
suffer and die in order that sins can be forgiven. Now somehow in all this discussion uh, Peter misses a very important word in verse 31. I don't know how he could have missed it but somehow Peter missed the promise of Jesus that he would rise on the third day. Now I'm no better than Peter, certainly not. But if I'd been listening to Jesus say what he did that day, that he must suffer and be killed and that he would rise on the third day, I think I probably would have said, I'm sorry, but did you just say you're going to rise on the third day? But Peter seems not to hear it. His mind is totally preoccupied with the idea that Jesus is going to suffer and die. And so he begins to rebuke Jesus. We've got no record of what Peter actually said. Uh, He may have taken Jesus on one side and said, you know, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, Don't you realise who you are? You know who you are. I know who you are. You can easily solve this problem. And if you don't, well, we will. It may perhaps have been something like that. But whatever it was, Jesus turns to Peter and says these terrible words. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, get out of my sight. Now we might think that's a bit of an overreaction, but the fact of the matter is that Jesus can see what we can't see, which is that Peter has become the mouthpiece for the devil. So at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, do you remember the temptation in the wilderness? The devil came to Jesus and said, don't go through with the crucifixion. Just bow down to me, then you won't need to go to the cross. And Jesus resisted the devil then. And now here, halfway through Mark's Gospel, a key man in Jesus' team says, you know, let's forget about this idea of the crucifixion. And once again, Jesus hears the voice of the devil. And then later in chapter 15, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, again Jesus hears the voice of the devil as people say to him, come down from the cross and save yourself. If you come down, we'll believe. But Jesus knows full well that if he comes down from the cross, no one will believe and no one will get saved. But can you see there is this pattern throughout the Gospel of the voice of the devil tempting Jesus to resist the crucifixion? And just as the cross is entirely beyond our full appreciation, I don't suppose we'll ever fully grasp all the implications of it. So the temptation for Jesus to avoid it must also be beyond our appreciation as well. And that's surely why Jesus speaks so very strongly to Peter here, telling him effectively, get out of my sight. Let me remind you that Mark's Gospel is based on the eyewitness testimony of Peter, And I guess that when they got to this part of the story, um, Peter must have said to Mark, by the way, please don't forget to include my utter stupidity, my ignorance, my blasphemy, the terrible suggestion that Jesus should avoid the cross. Don't forget to include that. But then, of course, the death came, uh, the resurrection came, the Holy Spirit came, and Peter was wonderfully transformed. And uh, on the day of Pentecost, Peter was able to say that the the crucifixion of Jesus was always and completely God's perfect and wonderful plan. And then he was able to write about it in his letters. 
where you remember he says that Jesus Christ died for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And he explains it in his letters all so simply and so clearly. Well friends, I don't think I could say strongly enough to you this morning that the cross is the only hope you have. If you want a reason why one day you're going to be in glory with Jesus, you're going to need to look back in your mind to the cross. And you're going to need to be able to say in your own mind, he, the righteous, died for me, the unrighteous, to bring me to God. And it is wonderful. You see, that's the only hope there is for any of us. Uh, What he did by his death on the cross was to pay for all our sins and it was a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice. And you need to personally and profoundly lift up your voice in prayer and say, Jesus, you who died for me, please be my Saviour and my Lord. So all of that is what we mean by the cross of salvation. But now secondly this morning, there is the cross of discipleship. And uh, here we're looking at verse 34, where Jesus says to the crowd and to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. It's a very famous invitation. Uh, Some of you might uh, know about the famous invitation of Ernest Shackleton. Back in 1913, he invited men to come with him on a trek to the South Pole. And the advert in the newspaper went like this. Men wanted. Hazardous journey. Small wages. Bitter cold. Long months of complete darkness. Constant danger. Safe return doubtful honour and recognition in case of success. Now do you, I wonder, think that that was a successful advertisement? It doesn't sound like it, does it? And yet he was overwhelmed by the number of men wanting to join him. Or perhaps in my home country, the UK, think of Winston Churchill in World War II trying to bring the British people together and saying to them, I have nothing to, to offer you but blood, toil, tears and sweat not a great advert but the entire nation said Winston we're with you but Jesus you see is appealing not so much to the courage of the crowd although that's part of it but the main thing here is that Jesus is appealing to their sanity he's saying if you know who I am then anything that keeps you from me is simply not worth it absolutely nothing must keep you from coming to me, sticking with me, and one day meeting me. And you see, I don't think we can face these words of Jesus without realising the incredible claim that he's making for himself. I mean, would you dare to say to the world, if you have me, well, you can, you, you can lose your life. Uh, if you have me, you can lose everything you own. If you have me, you can lose all your pleasures. It is an incredible thing that Jesus is saying. You'll notice also that he's not apologising. He's not justifying himself. You know, he's not saying, I'll be worth it in the end, so please, please, please come and join me. No, he simply says, 
I'm worth it. Now I suppose an evil man could say this. Uh, An evil man could say, give up everything for me. And of course, in history, evil men have said things rather like this. And essentially their message has been, I'm a kind of messianic figure, give up everything for me. But it's always been depraved and it's always ended in tragedy. But when you realise that Jesus is the Messiah, the Maker, the Ruler, the Saviour, the Lord, precious beyond the wealth of the entire world, you know that when you have him, you really do have far more than the whole world has to offer. You really do. His character proves it. His conduct proves it. Once you have him, you have everything. Now, not everyone agrees with this. Uh, Plenty of people will say, you're asking me to give up too much. But you see, you can only think like that if you don't understand Jesus and if you don't understand the fleeting nature of worldly pleasure. But Jesus, you see, does understand it and he invites us to have him and, if necessary, to lose everything else. And I think this invitation of Jesus is actually very, very comforting because it forces us to think again about who he is and it forces us to see everything else in comparison to him and his infinite value. And he very calmly and clearly says, drop everything that would keep you from me. If you've got particular idols that would do it, get rid of them. If you've got particular sins that would keep you away, get rid of them. If you've got excuses, get rid of them. If you've got alternatives, get rid of them. And instead, take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. Deny yourself means say no to yourself and your resistance to me. Take up your cross means say goodbye to the old life and start your new life. And follow me means, well, quite obviously, when I turn left, turn left. When I turn right, you turn right. Come with me, says Jesus, according to my word. Now I've tried to think through what Jesus means when he goes on to say what he does in verses 35 and following. Because I think when you and I hear something like what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul I think we have no real idea what he means and our minds go blank. So I want you to look at verse 35 where Jesus says for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And I want to rephrase that verse like this, because I think Jesus is saying, you need to be in the right hands. In other words, if your soul is in your hands and you've got the control, you'll lose it. If your soul is in my hands, says Jesus, and I've got the control, you'll save it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And uh, the reformer, Martin Luther, endorsed it. Because on one occasion he said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in his hands, I still possess. So put your soul in his hands. You need to be in the right hands. 
Then look at uh, verses 36 and 37, where Jesus says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And uh, I've changed that phrase into, you need to have the right brains. Because, you see, if the priority in your brain is that the world must come first, well, you've made a tragic mistake. You're pursuing something that's going to disappear. But, uh, you see, your soul is infinitely more valuable than the world. So imagine for a moment a set of scales. Uh, If you could put your soul on one side of the scales and the world, world culture, world civilization on the other, your soul would weigh far more than the world. And therefore, you need to ask yourself whether your priorities are in line with the value of your soul, because it's far more important than everything the world has to offer. C.S. Lewis says this, Civilization, or the world, is a tiny insect compared with a human being because a civilization will turn to dust but a human being is for eternity the third thing which is in verse 38 is if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels and we might rephrase that like this you need to have the right nerves Because, you see, if you're ashamed of Jesus, and I don't mean if you have a lapse, because we all have lapses. Even the Apostle Peter had a lapse in this particular area when he was ashamed of Jesus. Now, I'm saying, if it is your policy to be ashamed of him, if you say, Jesus lives on a shelf in my life and I'll call for him when I need him, but I'm not going to own him publicly, I want to be a secret disciple. If that is your policy and practice, Jesus says... Your policy will be my policy. And that is a very, very serious warning. (coughs) Excuse me. So we need to have the right nerves. So (coughs) can you see how carefully we need to listen to what Jesus is saying as he turns to the crowd? Yes, the cross of salvation is astronomically wonderful. But you see, the cross of discipleship is incredibly serious. We need to have our soul in the right hands and when we put our soul into his hands he will care and he will control. We need to have the right brain for our values. Do you realise that your soul is worth more than the world? And we need to have the right nerves for our witness. Because if you try and be a secret disciple, your secrecy will kill your discipleship. Excuse me for a moment. So, as we close this morning, uh, I do want to say something to some people who are watching or listening. And uh, this doesn't apply to everyone. And uh, what I'm about to say is not because I got out of bed on the wrong side this morning. Because I want us to think very carefully about what Jesus is actually saying when he invites people to come and take up their cross. 
Because, you see, if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we can't say, can we, that Jesus is inviting tourists. He's obviously not saying, uh, you know, would you like to visit me occasionally when you need a bit of a boost? And he's not calling pretenders. You know, he's not saying, I'm deeply committed to you if you're wanting to play church now and again, but your heart is still dark. And he's obviously not calling compromisers, people who are trying to live some kind of double life. And he's obviously not calling consumers, as if Christianity were rather like television, which we can turn on and off whenever it suits us. And he's not calling religious bullies, people who pervert the gospel in order to advance their own agenda. Last Sunday morning, we were looking at verse 29, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And I guess many people in church would say, Jesus is my saviour. And that's a pretty good answer. But you see, this morning, we're being reminded that he cannot and will not be our saviour unless he is also our Lord. He must have control over everything in your life and mind if he's going to save us from the worst dangers. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I someone who is actually living under the Lordship of Jesus? And as we reflect on these verses during the coming week, please will you remember that what is said here comes from someone who loves us because he's about to lay down his life for us. He couldn't possibly love us more. So friends, let's remember that the first cross, the cross of salvation, is absolutely wonderful. The righteous has died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That is wonderful. But the second cross is really serious, isn't it? Jesus said there will come a day when some people will say, Lord, you know, we did so many things in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. So friends, you and I must make a serious response to this wonderful salvation. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you this morning for the wonderful cross of salvation. We thank you for the incredible work that Jesus has done on behalf of sinners like us. And we thank you that this cross brings us forgiveness, adoption, hope. And we thank you also for the gracious invitation to take up the cross and follow Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to do it with integrity, with courage, with faithfulness and with joy. We count it a great privilege to know Christ. And we ask that you would help us to honour him, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.